This episode is brought to you by Zeratech Software Development. Are you a company whose commitment to excellence demands effective software tools? Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help build or enhance your technological systems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. You can find them at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. Hey guys, today I sat down and talked to Wyatt Bame. Wyatt is a musician, a guitarist, a singer. He's part of a band called Trophy Boy, which speaking of for anybody local to the Upper Peninsula, they've got a show on Friday the 17th at the Downtowner in Houghton and then shows every weekend after that for quite a while. Uh, they also have a new song out called The Pain. Wyatt did clarify to me that this is a demo still to be perfected, but check it out on YouTube, Spotify, all that kind of stuff, uh, Apple Music. It's a good representation of what they're all about. So I really appreciated hearing Wyatt's story. We graduated together. So a lot of this stuff, I didn't even, I guess I didn't even know. Uh, so it's fun to hear that. And I thought I should mention there is a little bit more swears and colorful language here. Uh, enjoy the episode, first the song, and then we get into the conversation.
That was the song. Here's the episode. Let's go. Welcome to the Obsessed Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Herkus. In this podcast, we get to meet and hear from folks who are obsessed with a wide array of interesting endeavors. We dive into some awesome stories and look at the mindsets and the psychology of those who are obsessed. Let's go. I want to ask you about your music. Where did music begin for you? Music began for me when I saw Back to the Future when I was 12. Okay. And, I, and there's this. Have you seen Back to the Future? No, I'm well, familiar. A scene yeah. in the movie where the main character, Marty McFly, does a talent show and he uh, plays the guitar and he just plays this insane solo and he goes crazy. And there's like three really prude judges watching, like st- looking down their noses at him and he's kicking over amps and he's flipping out and he's playing this awesome solo and they just hate it. <laughs> but I loved it. Right. And after that scene, three days later, I had a first act from Walmart. Huh. First act brand guitar from Walmart with an app. And that's where it started for me. Okay. So 12 years old. And yeah. then uh, what, what did that look like? You bought the guitar and then you were just YouTube uh, videos training or what? Well, you... I got the guitar and my first experience with it is I, I picked up the guitar and I expected to be able to shred right away. Okay. And I had no idea what distortion was, what scales were, what chords were. I just picked it up and started banging on it and it sounded like shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I got really mad. And luckily I, I, I went the way of uh i'm gonna get obsessed with it mad okay and get good at it rather than i've seen a lot of people get fr- the same kind of frustration when they first pick it up and just throw it away and just be like this isn't for me right F this but uh yeah after that i learned a lot by ear i got a burn cd with a lot of songs that i liked and i would just listen to like i'll listen to five seconds and i'll you know run down down the strings find the note Find, figure out a little five second phrase and play it 10 times and i'm like all right that's good next five seconds repeat 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 it would take me like two weeks to learn one song huh. well that's how it started and then i briefly had a few guitar lessons from uh from a guy rogar which uh he's he's still around playing shows and stuff but uh he taught me how to play like johnny be good which is the song that uh marty mcfly plays in the movie okay so that was the first song i actually learned in its entirety and then after that, I think uh, I got good enough to where I'd, the, the lessons I were, was getting weren't actually making me better. I kind of hit my first plateau. And then from there, I learned how to read tablature, which is just, it's a really simplified form of sheet music that maps out the neck of the guitar and what frets to hit. I learned how to read that. And then YouTube, continued learning by ear, put it down for a little while. And then when Ray Woodworth started playing guitar, I got really competitive again. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I got to be better than Ray. Right. So I picked it up and me and him learned a whole bunch of stuff together. Yeah. What age was that when you and Ray got like into it? 14, 15. Okay. But that's crazy though, that you were truly listening by ear. I've, I've got a minor exposure to guitar. My intro, I can play like seven intros and I have to read the tabs. There's no way that I could... Yeah. listen to a song and pick that out there's not a chance yeah that's cool that, that was me too when i started learning never knew a full song i knew like 40 intros right 40 cool guitar riffs but never actually put together a full thing yeah and i've and i mean for me it's just it just makes sense and i can just hear it and put it together but i guess that's not a really teachable thing that's yeah that's something you're just born with right what do you feel that way were you like you always had that yeah i was i was able to pick it up by ear okay pretty i mean it's compared it was hard for me in the beginning 
but my ear never changed. But now in hindsight that I know a bunch of people who play and I've met all different uh, ranges of skill levels, I've realized that it, it's kind of a gift having the ear. Okay. Because not a lot of people have that. And it's not as simple as I used to think it was. Yeah. Can you overcome that? I guess we'll jump around and we can do that. But can you overcome that, not have the ear, but still be a quality musician? Absolutely. I think so. The hardest thing to teach is rhythm. So okay. generally people play guitar right-handed where your fretting hand is your left hand and your right hand is your strumming hand. Yeah. And all your rhythm comes from your right hand. You can teach your left hand what to do and the frets to hit and to play cleanly and with good mechanics relatively easily with a lot of practice. And what I've seen teaching people and just seeing people play the rhythm of the right hand is you almost can't teach it. It's extremely hard to teach. Hmm. So that's something, that's another thing that I think are, people are just inherently, uh, if they're musically inclined, have rhythm, you either have it or you don't. But I believe that anyone can learn how to play. Sure. Not that people will learn how to play because they don't have the drive or it helps to be good at, relatively good at it right away because then you're inspired to keep learning. Right, right. The competitive side though with Ray is what got you back into it? Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. If Ray had never learned how to play guitar, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. <laughs> right, right. That's crazy. So we'll we'll chat about your new song, The Pain, coming up here, but I want to stick to the original or the, the founding. Like what did that mean for you, whatever else? At 12 years old, at 14 years old, was it just something fun to do or was it like a, a, a revolutionary part of your life? I wanted like from... From very soon after I picked up the guitar, I just wanted to be a rock star. Okay. I just was like, that would be such a fun job. I just want to make money doing it. And I was always just a fiend for attention, as you know. We went yeah. to school together. Just always trying to be the loudest voice in the room and shit like that. Uh, but yeah, I've just, I always wanted to make it to, well, what I would consider the top is just making a living off of it. Sure. Right. And your threshold can always change, right? Once you're making a living, then you can set new. Yeah. Set new goals. New Ideally, goals, yeah. I've been talking about this with the members of the band and stuff recently is like, dude, if we can just make enough money to not have to have a break, break my back blue collar job like I have mm -hmm. for a year, then that's a, that's a year we can focus to make the next album and then just ride that wave. Right. And like as we run out of money, oh, now we got new material. We can make more money. Yeah. And just right. do that. Do you follow Jordan Peterson at all? Are you familiar with him? A psychologist out of Canada? Yeah, actually, I read his I read his book recently, The 12 Rules for Life. Okay. Did you read it? What did you think of it? It was amazing. It was yeah. great. I haven't read the book. It's uh, really, really well put together. Like He, he lays out a very <clears throat> general foundation in the beginning for the ideas he's going to discuss. And then he just pieces it together and... Well, oh, because I read this chapter, I understand this idea. Oh, right. and now in chapter four, I understand these ideas a lot better because he laid it out. So the foundation for these more complex ideas in the previous three chapters. Right. One of the best books I've read in years. Huh. I need to order it. But part of what he talks about, and I, I'm, I don't know if I've ever done this, but he talks about doing one thing and just doing it all in, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and what would that look like and what would that gain you? And that's what I'm thinking about for you, not having the, the 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 income or the income concerns for a year, and you could put all your energy and all your focus into that. What would that look like? And that's what you're getting at. What right? would that look like? So if we uh, say like huge numbers, say if we dropped an album for twelve dollars on iTunes and it sold, well, we we get a dollar per sale. So if it sold it a hundred thousand copies, each member of the band would have twenty five thousand mm dollars. -hmm. 
or say it sold 500,000, 400,000 copies. So each of us has a hundred grand. If I had a hundred grand and it all came from music, first off, the fact that it came from music would inspire me enough and give me enough confidence to be like, well, I can quit my job because I can do this. Right. Yeah. And I'm going to start putting it towards that. The first thing I would do would be get an audio interface like the one you have sitting right in front of us yeah. and a condenser mic and studio monitors and a good laptop and a program. And I'd probably dedicate the first few months to just learning how to record my own stuff pro- professionally. Right. And after that, it's just writing, man. It's just r- writing and composing and putting myself in environments that are conducive to creative thought. Like, I don't know, like rent a lake house or something, go find inspiration. Like, what whatever Queen did when they wrote the Bohemian Rhapsody album, they went up to some random cabin in the woods for a long time. I'm not sure how long, but that's where they wrote that album. Right. So I do something like that. And uh, when you have the home studio, I maybe wouldn't release actually release what I had written in the home studio. But as far as making what's called a demo, it's way better to have. You can make a really clean demo that you can send to the producers you like. Like, cause we've only worked with one producer, but we're shopping around. Sure. Uh, I think we might try a couple other producers in the future just for different styles of songs and stuff and different proclivities from different recording people. But, uh, that's another thing you could do. You, you make the demo at home, you send it to the producer you like, and then they make it commercially viable and they put their professional spin on it. Sure. And then you have a product that you can sell. Yeah. But d- Right. Hopefully within a year, within a year using that hundred thousand dollars that I have, I would have another album that I could sell. Yeah. Right. That'd be the idea. But part of what I'm getting at is the, the finances part is great, but just really having the brain space to spend 80 hours a week oh, yeah. putting time into this, really doing those extra 10% of things that most people wouldn't do or whatever else, yeah. where would that get you to? And I know you're laying out the plan, but it's almost like a intangible thing that you would reach maybe i don't know there's something special i think like what would i how would i like cultivate my headspace no my freestyle more so not even asking a question but just wondering about the concept of like how does that all work no no not even how does that all work but i'm just thinking about this okay for myself in this podcast right i'm I'm full-time real estate i've got three little ones at home i'm super busy with that I'm as all in on this as I can be within the bounds of where I'm currently at. Right. Right. Um, But say I wasn't doing real estate and I was doing this all in, I'd be doing some video stuff. I'd be doing way more marketing, stuff like that, trying to grow and spread the brand. Right. Right. Uh, Of just having the space and the energy and the time to just go all in on something, not even asking you, what would you do or what's your headspace? I'm just exploring the concept and the idea of that's where magic happens almost when you have the space to do that. Yeah. I mean, because inspiration is so fleeting right when you have a full-time job and you have other things you're trying to hustle to make more money and you have barely any time to yourself like inspiration will come to me a lot when i'm crawling around in an attic and i'll be like shit i'm not going to remember this right it's going to like by the time i get home this is going to be gone this idea is going to be gone but if that if i'm not if i don't have a job and i just have all this time to do whatever i want whenever the inspiration comes oh well my guitar is right here get it down on paper Right. Because that's the biggest thing I've learned in the last couple of years is I used to be like, oh, I'm falling asleep. Oh, that's a good idea. I'll remember it in the morning. Gone. Yeah. Probably hundreds of of number one smash hit songs gone <laughs> just because I forget them and I didn't write them down. But in the last year or so, I've, I've really gotten good at as soon as it comes, I need to get it down. At least a little bit of it. Okay. Like a base concept. 
Right. And then it actually, then I come back to it later with yeah. a fresh mind and, and becomes something. Right. And that's been huge for my songwriting. Whereas you with like the podcast, you might have like a really good idea, like, oh, I could do this and this would really help my marketing. Mm-hmm. And then, well, you're in the middle of a real estate sale. And then four hours later, you don't, you're like, oh, what, what was, what was that a concept really? Like, what was that idea? It was so good when I had it, but I can't remember it. Right. But yeah. yeah. No, there's kind of tons of parallels for me. Uh, so thinking about the podcast, the marketing, whatever else, there's time and space that I have and I can't fit all of what I want to do into this. Mm-hmm. But there's something about, again, being intentional, all in, that's all you're doing, like you for your music for a year, where if I could do that for this, there's something magical that would happen there. But it's the same for me of doing this podcast. Like you and I, we've ran across each other three times in the last three weeks almost, right? Yeah. But you, you five minutes, hey man, how's it going? Whatever. You get never get to any point of depth. But whereas you're like, hey Wyatt, let's sit down and talk for an hour and a half. Yeah. You get way further than you would not intentionally doing this. So I'm saying even the fact that you get way further in this setting, to me, feels like you get way further. Uh, just tying that into how much further on a depth level you would get by having a year to just oh, focus yeah. on it. You can explore the sphere more. Right. Become like if you had a, a year only to focus on the podcast, you're gonna learn exponentially more of an amount about this field than you would having a job and doing it for a year. Like right. you'll learn as much in a year with time to yourself for this as you would with a job in the next eight years, probably. Yeah, for sure. But so taking it back again, right now you're playing one of four members of a band. You've got a song that you just released, um, taking it back to those early days when you were 14, 12, whatever else you were competitive. You wanted to beat Ray, but at what point did it become like, this is your life? Was it in that moment? Was it that time or was it later or what was it? Well, I I wanted to be Marty McFly. Marty McFly was a rock star. Okay. And then I kind of fell out of it. And then Ray was just the catalyst for me to physically do it more. Yeah. And as soon as I picked it up again and started doing it more, the the dream, the dream wasn't to beat Ray. The dream was to be a rock star. Ray being there and competing with him just helped. Mm-hmm. Like there's a there's a there's a more immediate reason for me to do this. Like sure. goals. Like if I if I have a goal for the end of the week, I you know, I'm uh, more likely to focus 100 percent on this short term goal. Then like, oh, I only I only have one goal and it's 10 years from now. How how often every day are you going to focus on that for that long? Right, right. So the long-term goal is be a rock star and the short-term goal was beating Ray, which was much easier to achieve sure. <laughs> and to focus on. Right. But I'm curious about the uh, shift in you for like the amount of space that you put your life into that from a, yeah, how much of it was your life then and how much of it is now and, and what was that transition like to the point where like right now you probably think about this all the time, right? All music, time. music, whatever else. The only thing I think about other than smartphone insulation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but with that, when did that change or was, has it been like that for a long time I, or can you even define So I'll, I'll, I'll lay out a timeline for you. When I was 12, I started, I got pissed off because I sucked. Right. That turned into eight hours a day, every single day for like a year. And then I fell out. I don't really remember why I fell out of it, but I did for about a year. And then Ray started right back to six to eight hours a day with my best friend. So that's another dynamic that made it even more fun because we're learning together. And then learn, 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 learn. And then that guy that gave me the first lesson, I uh, I didn't fall out with him, but I just didn't talk to him for like five years. Okay. And then when I 
reconnected with him. I had done all this work since the first time he saw me and he was really impressed. And that was really motivating for me to have my guitar teacher be super impressed with where I'm at. And he invited me to join his band. I played my very first show ever at uh, the Orpheum at Studio Pizza when mm-hmm. they like first opened when I was 15. Hmm. And then I played some gigs with those guys and I was still playing a lot. At this point I had in the house that I grew up in on 11th street, I had all the equipment. I had a bass and a bass amp and a guitar and a guitar amp and a PA for vocals and a drum set, all of mine, which was awesome because then I learned how to play the bass. Then I learned how to play the drums and I could just dick around and play all these things. And right around that time is where the band Ask Peep Comover got started, APC. Mm-hmm. Remember us? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, and we played our, our one gig was our senior all-nighter at QM Mountain Lodge. But that that point, so that's between... 17 and 18 was APC and uh, we were playing all the time and that's that's where I got my mo- the most experience I've ever had playing with a group okay because I did play with Rogar and his band but it wasn't anything like like I would have to go to his house and they were all older than me and they had all their own lives so it was hard to coordinate things consistently when I had APC we were all in high school with nothing better to do and I had all the shit at my house yeah so like twice a week all the time and our buddies from there was a point in the summer between junior and senior year where I would wake up in my room to like Ben Clement or someone like saying, Beamer, there's 10 people here. Get the band. <laughs> and then I get the band over and we just like every day was a party. There'd be 15 people at the house and we would just jam house party shows right. for a long time. And that was really fun. And then we did the, the all nighter. Uh, Cody went to college. Mitty went in the army. Ray went to college and I went to Florida, I think, or I went to Northern and that band hasn't played since. So, uh, after that I got, when I was in college, I got really good at like acoustic stuff. That's where I picked up acoustic guitar and started singing a lot more. So that's between 19 and 21. Uh, and I did some busking in Florida and stuff like that. And so that, so that developed, so at this point I was a good electric guitarist. I was a halfway decent singer. And now college, I learned acoustic techniques and went way harder on my singing than I ever had before. And that's how I developed my voice, I think, and became a decent singer. And then what happened after that? I'm 22. Then not, not a lot happened. I went to North Dakota. I played in a band for a little bit, had one gig with them. I think they kicked me out of the band because they got really drunk at the show. Hmm. And it was great for me, but not for them. Right. <laughs> and uh, then I went to Atlanta after that and helped my uncle with his business. And I didn't really play at all in Atlanta. And then I came back up here. And then the 80s band Night Screamer with Clint Cairo, who's now a 97.7 The Wolf, hmm. which I envy that job. The bastard got the best job in the world. Anyway, I joined his band. And before I joined that band, I hadn't played guitar in the better part of the year. It's the longest I had gone without... I was starting to fall out of it. I was starting to be like, well, maybe this isn't it. And that's the first time in my life since I started that I actually thought, like, maybe this isn't for me. I can't do this. Uh, But then I joined that band. And even though I hated the music, I don't like the 80s, man. Like, I like some of the 80s. I have respect for all music. But I wouldn't be caught dead listening to ACDC in my shower, you know? And that's the kind of stuff we were playing. So I was kind of, yeah. Yeah, I don't really want to do this, but I'll do it anyway because Clint's really good at booking shows and I can make consistent money playing in a band, which is something I've always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But then my 
my opinion changed as we started playing these smash hit 80s songs for crowds that absolutely adored it. And that was my first experience outside of the Keweenaw Mountain Lodge show with APC of playing to a crowd that really wants to hear your stuff. Yeah. That's really like you're feeding the crowd energy and they're feeding you and it's perpetual. And that's how I, that's when I first started experiencing real live experience and good shows. Hmm. Cause when I was in Rogar's band, we, we weren't really good at promoting or planning and we never really had a big crowd and we didn't sound very good. Yeah. No offense to Rogar. <laughs> but yeah, with Night Screamer, I, I was really good at guitar at that point. We sounded great. The audience loved us, and that made me fall in love with music again. I went back to playing four or five hours a day, learning yeah. solos to songs I had only known the intro for for the last 10 years, like the Sweet Child of Mine solo. I'm so happy I finally got to learn that solo because I never knew the song beyond the intro riff. So then Night Screamer played for two years, and then Clint moved to Florida. And then uh, a little bit later, me and Corey Kowski and Brian Matkin started the band what is now a trophy boy, we started as Box 45. Okay. Because Koski's a local history nut. And uh, the name Box 45 came from the box number of the fire alarm that was pulled during the Italian Hall disaster. Hmm. I'm like, sure, I guess that's a good enough name. And we started as an original band. And we're all original music because Koski hated cover bands. He was a real purist. And then I came up with this idea. I was going to call it Squirm at first. I was like, hey. We can do like I mean, we can be like Night Screamer, but also play the music I like. So let's pick songs from the '90s and 2000s, the music that we love, but as a compromise, only the greatest hits, so the crowd will still know the music and you can still get that effect and energy. And at first, I pitched it to Cody West and Zach Matfolk because I was scared of what Koski might think. I knew I just, in my mind he was just going to shoot it down right away. <laughs> So I pitched it to those guys. They were both interested. Cody backed out, and I was like, ah, fuck it. Pitched it to the Box 45 guys, and to my surprise, they all latched on to the idea. I must have had a pretty good sales pitch. And the idea was, let's learn this package, make money with this package, because original bands don't make money. Make money with this package, and then use the money we make with this package to support our original project. And that's how it's been. Huh. And nobody liked the name Squirm. And one day, Koski, I think, in the band chat just said, what about Trophy Boy? I was going to use that a couple years ago, but it never came through. And immediately, everyone was like, yep, sounds good. Super marketable. Sounds great. Hmm. We loved it right away. Right. And then we got a polar bear mascot, and we got a banner, and we went all in on this idea. And now we've had, we're coming up on our seventh show at the DT, and it's starting, the, the vision is starting to actually come true, where the idea is, well, no, nobody... You don't keep a crowd with a, with music they don't know. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows our original songs. So another part of the idea, other than making money with covers and supporting our originals, was like when you change your dog's food, you don't give them the new food all at once. Right. You sneak it in a little bit, little bit, little bit until it's all new food so they don't puke all over the carpet. And that's like the audience is the dog and our original music is the new food. Hmm. So we, we feed them what they know, 90s, 2000s hits, so they get pumped off us and we garner a following of people that are crazy about our show because we're playing music they know and love and then we'll sneak in an original. Mm -hmm. Like we get their attention, we have them pumped and then sneak in a song they don't know that we wrote and see if we can keep that energy going through the song. Right. And that's what we've been doing. And now we have, I think we have six finished songs and we want to drop an album in fall and it's been working, it's been working pretty good so far. Yeah. I'm right. really excited to play, to 
to play the pain live at the DT since it's been released because I think uh, more people will know it now. And then there's one more original. It's still a discussion. We're not sure if we should play more than one original at the show, but there is another one that I really like that I think is a better song than The Pain. Sure. That I'd like to debut at that show. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Forrester Research interviewed 206 senior technology leaders in major organizations responsible for software development sourcing. 63% said their software development service partners do not have a full understanding of their end customer. If you're dead serious about moving faster and getting more done, Zeratech Software Development can help you move forward with confidence. Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help solve your problems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. As they align with their clients, they use a proven method to understand the scope of the problem and help demystify the steps to make it go away. They will deliver the software solution you need, and they do it with the integrity that you'd expect from a family-owned business in the heartland of America. Schedule a call with the team at Zeratech today at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. Well, it's fun to hear the story. Uh, I mentioned Jordan Peterson earlier. Yeah. Um, and part of what this podcast has been about is like, okay, I'm super obsessive. Anything I get into, I typically get into it all the way. And that's what this founder from is a, a passion in mule deer hunting, right? Great so, but I, I try to, what's that? Great way to be. Yeah. So I try to figure out what makes somebody that way and why are you that way? Clearly you are. You're seven, eight hours on the guitar. You're th thinking about it all the time right now. This is a huge part of your world. And I'm getting mixed answers with people from like, are they internal about it the same way I am? And that's how I would look at it through that mindset of just, are they internal? Are they in their head or not? And thinking about this kind of stuff. But then I learned something from Jordan Peterson the other day, and I need to re-listen to it or even regather this. But he was saying that depending on what your personality type is, that's that will dictate how you view your life. So in, in my head, in my world, I look back on my life and say I'm internal and obsessive, but I look at my life as though it's like a book or a movie, uh. right? Uh, and he would say that's a creative type. And I never would have looked at myself as creative, but I'm curious how you do that because I guess throw in a little uh, conscientious types look at their life based on their achievements. Mm -hmm. You know, I did this, I graduated from this degree, I did this. Agreeable types would look at their lives based on their relationships. I used to know this person, now I know this person, now I really got to work well with this person, whatever. Yeah. But I'm curious for you, how do you look at your life? And I've only given you three of the five. I can't remember the other two of the five. But. As far as thinking about my life in terms of narrative and like a book and just like going over in my head what's happened and what's happening now, I try to view the glasses half full because I've had some hardships. I was mm. homeless in Florida for a little while. I had some bad breakups. There's a bunch of crap that happened to me that mm. wasn't good. Right. But in hindsight, I wouldn't be where I am now. If any one of those things didn't happen, my life wouldn't look like the way it does now. Right. And I don't mind the way my life looks now. Like Trophy Boy is huge for me. I love that this happened. And and yeah, I, I don't know. I, have you ever taken a Myers-Briggs? Yeah. So yeah. mine is like ENTJA, I okay. think, which is like extroverted, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I don't really believe in the absolute accuracy of those tests because you could take one today and then mm -hmm. be in a different mood next month and take it again and get a slightly different answer. Right. But anyway, that was the personality type. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really know how that speaks to the way I view my life, but yeah. So I guess you are more, more experienced. Like I don't, I don't base uh, where I am now based off of achievements. I don't think about my achieve, achievements as so much as my experiences and how they shaped where I am now. Okay. It's something I'm still just playing with, but again, 
prior to this episode, I always thought about, do you think about your life internally or do you not? And that was my framework. It's just either or. Sometimes. Whereas now through that experience and through that conversation of hearing or through the listening to Jordan talk about depending on your personality type will dictate how you view your life. That mm. to me was eye opening and saying maybe the either or question isn't the right question. Right. So I'm curious, not necessarily on how do you frame your movie, but do you view your life as like literature or sometimes. a book? If I'm sitting around just thinking about stuff, sometimes I'll, I'll run, I'll run back the reel in my head to the beginning and be like, wow, it's, it's really cool that, you know, like uh being insecure about not going to college launched me into going to college and then not wanting to spend money on the college launched me into being homeless in Florida where and and the one semester of college was great because I learned all the acoustic and vocal stuff the being homeless in Florida was great because I met a guy that was a finance manager on a park bench one time waiting for my bus home and offered me a place to stay and that's how I got into finance and trading stocks later in life. You, you know, I, mm -hmm. I used to do that. Yeah. And then uh, I came back and I, that was my, so Florida was my life lesson in the importance of a car. I went there on a Greyhound, 19, no license. It's terrible. Right. I, and I thought $800 was a lot of money. So that was my life lesson in the value of transportation and the value of a dollar. Good. Check. A little bit better person, even though I was homeless. Terrible experience, but I learned something. So I came back, got enough money to get a car, got my license, these important things, knew the value of a dollar a little bit better. So I didn't go to North Dakota with $800. I went out there with a couple grand and had a better idea of how far a dollar gets you. Mm -hmm. And I went out there, made a bunch of money, spent it all, made 60 grand in six months, came back home in the same piece of shit Durango I went there with. Nothing mm -hmm. to show for it. That was my life lesson in budgeting. So after that, you know, it was a mediocre experience. I would have liked to have money to have had money when I got back, but I didn't. And I learned from it. And mm -hmm. since then I've been a better budgeter and just all, all these things. That's how I think of my life is like, what, like all the skills I have now came from some experience, some situation I put myself in that may not have necessarily been pleasant at the time. Right. And yeah. And as far as the music goes, there's a whole bunch of different stories that can be told about that. Yeah. Just random happenings. It was never a plan. It's never a plan. What do they say? Uh, you make plans and you make plans and God laughs or whatever. Right. And that's how life has been. Yeah. And the plan always changes and the plan never goes according to plan. Yeah. But it, you still end up in a spot. I think if you try, if you have an underlying vision that you kind of, you, you still work on in some way, you're going to end up closer to where you want to be no matter what happens in between. Mm -hmm. We all would love to get there in a straight line, but we're all doing it through a curly straw. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and think 40 years down the road, when you look back again, I'm, so I'm thinking about from this movie perspective, like looking at your life as a book or movie or whatever else, 40 years down the road, you look back, all these things, like you said, were just lessons to get you to that place where you're meant to be. Yeah. Even if they, you know, and the lessons, well, what a Louis CK said once, oh man, I forget the bit. He's like, you don't, you don't ever learn from life when you try. You learn from life when life kicks you in the balls and you're like, oh, everything's different now. And that's when you learn. Right. So the more life kicks you in the balls, the more you learn. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. You never just have a plan and it just goes according to plan. That would be so boring. That would be such a boring life. Right, right. 
just the other week I had somebody on here, a gentleman I looked up to for quite a while, Pat Durkin. He's an outdoor writer. He's been in it for many, many years, but he said his obsession and his passion came from just being an insecure kid and getting some confirmation from, uh, parents and his grandmother saying, boy, Pat, you're a good writer. And that was what he latched onto and he just hung onto that. And that's what he's been doing for 45 years. I mean, that's putting it in a nutshell. There's way more to life than just that. But yeah. either way, we were exploring the thought of, is everybody insecure? Because you talked about your own insecurities making oh, you want to be the I've... class clown or whatever else. But yeah. I think there's like something really cool about that. The fact that out of that comes that passion and that obsession and the, and the yeah. what you're into. Oh, thinking right? back that far, I was, I was bullied in elementary school. I had two friends i think i had ray and Alyssa doopy and we would hang out and play pokemon and everybody else i didn't get along with anyone else so you're getting fights all the time you know this mm-hmm. to the point where it's like there was a point where in elementary school if i didn't get in a fight for a whole week the principal would take me to burger king for lunch mm-hmm. and that was great and I, I felt really clever about that i was like sweet oh yeah you just gotta keep being an asshole and i'll get priv- special privileges for not being an asshole right but uh but yeah, I think that fed into my desire to be liked and be looked at and be the center of attention. Because where where that st- where my extroversion I think started is I found a jo- a book of adult jokes at my grandfather's house, and I read them, and I memorized them, and I went to school and I told them like they were my own, and they got people laughing, and I started to experience like what it's like to be the center of attention and the funny guy, and I latched onto that. And that was before the guitar thing ever happened. But maybe, maybe something about that happening made me even want more to be like Marty McFly and have everyone's eyes on me and be right. the center of attention. And maybe that was just the medium that that was presented to me in such a way that I was inspired to do it. Yeah, right. Well, there's something about that. So we talk about the insecurity. You were talking about being bullied and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think to myself that without that obviously some of those events were just brutal right being bullied is not fun maybe I, I don't know i'm just putting myself in your shoes and it's not fun but for me it was important i think that's what i'm that's saying yeah. thing. i wouldn't right. be anywhere near who i am today if i was never bullied if i fit in all the time god i feel like i would be so boring yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i probably would have had the same job for the last 10 years i've had 15 jobs in the last 10 years yeah and i think that's interesting i would have rather had 15 different jobs in four different states than one job down the street which right. i mean more power to you you got more money than me if you have done that and you probably got a house, which I need to do because I feel more stupid every year. I don't own property and right now is not the market to do it. Right. But, uh, but yeah, out of that, I got cultured. I have a lot more culture than money, mm-hmm. which I think that's a fair trade off. Oh yeah, for sure. Especially getting into the music world. It's huge. I think. Yeah. 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 And, the, and yeah, with the, the musical contacts I've been able to make going around the country <clears throat> and having these different experiences, like the kid that I played uh, with in a band briefly in North Dakota is now uh, in a band with the woman that replaced Cheryl Crow in Kid Rock's act and he's touring with them. Unreal. And it's, yeah, that that's unreal. I'm super jealous of him. Right, right. <laughs> Trying to horn in on his action. I was like, oh, really? You're doing that? Maybe we should meet up sometime. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know. I just like thinking back on all that stuff and sometimes it's hard for, I'm going to say, put talk about me. I think a lot of my obsessions and my passions and my working drive probably comes from an insecure place. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. If you were to think what is the catalyst that made my brain work the way it does now, as far as getting obsessed with stuff, what would you say that catalyst is or group of catalyze for for you or for me? That's a word for you. Yeah. Again, it's uh, hard to say, but I think it probably comes from 
again, I just exploring this subject of, I think is everybody insecure and myself included, right? At a young age and finding reward in affirmations, like somebody being like, wow, you're really good at that. Yeah. Val- validation. You, you work hard towards something you think is cool and you accomplish it and you get validation right. for that and people like it and they think you're a more interesting person, blah, blah, blah. Right. Right. Really, I, so, <clears throat> I read a lot of philosophy and everyone's got a different meaning of life. My own philosophy is that the literal meaning for life as me is human interaction because we're social creatures. Yeah. Why does anyone want to get rich? Oh, so people like me, I have lots of friends and big parties. Why, why do I want a house? Well, so I can make more people with the person that likes me. So I have more people that look up to me and I can shape them into the people I want them to be. Mm-hmm. And it's all, it's all just social interaction. Anything you do in life, like any goal you have, generally the ends to that is going to be more people. Right. More, more relationships that are valuable that I like. Right. Like music, any, any peer, like, I don't care if people think I'm a sellout. I want to make money at this. That's half the reason I'm doing it. I'm, I'm not going to have the whole poetic, like, oh, I just want to be heard. I'm so misunderstood, which a lot of people are. And it's, that's fine. But even, even them, even them, I, I just want to be heard. Music is the expression for me. It's the only way I can express myself, which I do feel that way a little bit too. But that's, that all comes back to social interaction. I just want to be heard. Right. Other people. That's the meaning of life is developing and strengthening relationships between people. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I talked to a lot of people and that's what this is all about. Partially just to have these conversations and learn what makes people tick, but it's just fun to sit across from somebody. Why it, what makes you tick. But thinking about that is a lot of these people that are into things, they will say eventually it comes back to the only thing or the main thing that sustains them is the people. They're a doctor and what sustains them is this awesome story they heard that morning from this grandma or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, but also you talk about personality types and you said your ENF, whatever it was, the first part, extroversion. I'm just exploring here. Does that make you more prone to worrying about the relationships? I don't think so. Actually, I think it's just a universal thing. I think I'm experiencing a universal phenomenon where as I get older, I get more empathic or empathetic, whatever that word is. I'm developing more empathy. Like I feel worse when I break up with a girl. Okay. When I was a teenager, I'd be like, Oh, I love you. And then be with him for a while. And then, oh, sorry, I don't love you anymore. Never talk to him again. Not right. worry about it. I did that until I got my heart broken. And then that's, well, huge, huge loads of empathy after that happened to me. Because I was like, wow, I did this to so many people. Right. So there's that. And and just other things that happen make me care more about how other people feel. Right. And I do, I do care a lot more about the relationships I have and the new relationships I form and the strength of those relationships now than when I was younger. Okay. Yeah. Cause thinking about that, you were talking about young and how that shaped you, whatever else. And same thing. You don't realize at a young age, a lot of those things, like if I could go back and redo some parts of school, I would like, I'm talking about seeing somebody get bullied, step in and do something about it. You right. Know? Man, if you could only relive that, but you can't, you're just young. You're just trying to survive, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a, it's definitely a survival type environment as a kid, especially if you're not popular. Right. <laughs> We're not like well off financially. Like I was just a poor kid with a mullet that I thought was cool. That's one thing I envy about my younger self is I had that fucking mullet for like four years. I got bullied every day for it, but I didn't give a shit, man. I was just like, no, you got every single other person that's not me is making fun of me for this. And I was still like, no, dude, you don't understand. This is cool. Right. I think it's cool and I'm going to do it. Yeah. So, yeah. You follow Theo Vaughn at all? Yeah. He's, he's awesome. He's got his mullet. <laughs> 
Theo's awesome. He's got a lot of good stories. Right. He seems like a really chill dude. I'd love to meet him sometime. Yeah. No, but before we got on today, this is stuff I think about all the time, for better or for worse, just life and what does it mean and where is it taking you, whatever else. Before we got on, I was thinking about these personality types and how do you view your life. And in my head, I think I view my life through like a story narrative, right? Right. And part of that story for me, and we were th- I was tying that into music, is for you. Can you picture, I don't remember what year or what age we were, driving to a football game, all the players on the bus were like stomping our feet and hitting the seats and you're singing, we will rock you as we go. Oh yeah, dude. I remember, you remember that? that. Yeah. And crows even laughing up front to me. Like <laughs> if I had a movie about my life, that would be a scene like the. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the, one of the scenes in, in, in that respect that sticks out for me is when we were in school and it was a talent show and I was walking up to my seat and there was a bunch of people around me and randomly i don't know why i did this but i just did it and i just said when i say hillshire you say farms and i said it really loud and i said it and everyone in the room said farms and i was so happy (laughs) (laughs) oh Oh, that's funny that was uh, like in the gym or something or what do you mean like that was in the middle school gym for a talent show okay where i think i think uh jonah jonah tybalkoski acapellaed uh a billy joel song you may be right no music yeah I may be crazy. Silence. But I just might be the moon. All off key and stuff. It was hilarious. Uh, I feel bad too because like right before he's like, hey, will you play guitar for me? And I was so for my Billy Joel song. And I was like, oh yeah, dude. And then I totally forgot. And then he was just up there alone. Yeah. <laughs> but it was funny. And we all had a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. man. moving, moving a crowd has been something that's always given me great joy. Yeah. What's that like? Because you talked about that. What What was the band where you started doing covers and you weren't into it at first? What's it called? Night Screamer. Night Screamer. Okay. And then you finally got that feeling of, wow, the band's into this. Yeah. Like, was that wow, first... we're moving a crowd with the music. Yeah. What's that feeling like? Can you describe that or do you have to just feel it? You just, you want it all the time. Yeah. You want it all the time when that happens to you. And with Trophy Boy, we've, we've been able to get that to an extreme level for every show, which is super inspiring. And this is the first group of people, this is the first group of musicians I've played with where we're actually, as a collective, we're actually all starting to believe that we can take this all away. Yeah. All the other bands I've been in, I've I've tried to like put my ideas out there and garner this type of like foster this belief that we can do it, but no, nobody really ever believed in it. It's such a far fetched dream. Right. But in this group in particular, we're realizing more and more as time goes on and these shows goes on that it's it's a lot more achievable than we may have thought. Yeah. So that's really, really exciting. Right. So it's something you just always want, but can you describe it? Like, like, like bubbles out of you or something or what? It's a bad way to put it, but I... Have you ever told a really funny joke and like 15 people laugh really oh, yeah. hard? Sure. It's like yeah. that. Okay. But it's like magnified. that, but it's 300 people and it's for three hours straight. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because when you crack a good joke at a party and everyone laughs, you feel good. You're like, ah, man, I'm killing it. I'm on fire for like yeah. 15 seconds and then it goes away. But this is just that sustained for an entire show. Yeah. And it's awesome. Right. There, There's obviously levels to that. Do you think, is there diminishing returns, meaning 300 is... 300 versus 100,000, right? You know what I mean? Like there's a certain level. It's actually weird. I I'll, I don't get stage fright anymore. But it the only time it will ever creep on is if I'm in a room and I don't have a band to lean on if it's a solo gig for like 15 people. Okay. That's the most that's the most at risk I'll ever be again huh. for stage fright. But if you're playing in front of 100,000 people, I feel like it's nothing. Okay. 
it's kind of like being scared of heights. If I'm if I'm at 15 feet and I know if I fall, I'm gonna get really badly injured, but I'm not gonna die. I'll be nervous. But if I'm 100 feet in the air, I'm like, well, I'm gonna be dead anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's like playing for 100,000 people, and because you're you're leaning on the band and you're leaning on the crowd too. The bigger and more boisterous the crowd is, the less you have to lean on your band members and on your sound. You, you're just feeding on energy, man. The more energy the crowd is, the easier it is. Yeah, right. I can see that. Even talking, I asked you about Theo Vaughn and these comedians. Won't they really go out and try to find these little tiny venues to work their stuff on because it right, puts them at that vulnerable place? Yeah, yeah. It feels more vulnerable. And I, I mean, I, I haven't heard anyone say this, but I would, I would uh, assume that one point could be that, well, if I can make this small group of people laugh, then it's going to absolutely kill sure. in a stadium. Yeah. Because these guys, because this small crowd feels awkward. Right. Like no, nobody, nobody here really feels like super uninhibited because it's quiet and there's not a lot of chatter and you're just, you're in a more vulnerable social position. Yeah. So if you can make that group feel comfortable with your performance, then you'll easily be able to uh, transfer that to a massive crowd. Yeah. Because it's easy because everyone already feels comfortable. Right. They're all drunk and you're, you're brushing elbows with strangers the whole time. You have to be uninhibited. Mm-hmm. How important, and I'm sure you get a different answer from everybody, every musician you ask, but how important is like the crowd work, like between songs, engagement, talking to them, stuff like that? It's definitely, uh, it depends on what kind of act you are. For you for, guys. For Trophy Boy, crowd work is really uh, important. Okay. Like we want to make people laugh. We just want people to have a good time. I ex- I explained it in this way to the band the other day is a, uh, we're just the crowd. All right. I'm sorry. So we're just hanging out with the crowd, man. It's just a bunch of people hanging out and we all want to have a good time. So let's have a good time together and get to know each other. Right. And show you what we got and banter with the crowd, banter with each other, make people laugh. Yeah. Be, just be generally entertaining. But I have seen bands that they're all, they're just all nerds and they're not, they're super introverted. Mm-hmm. But those are usually the best musicians. Hmm. And their their style of moving the crowd is they don't rely on banter at all. They'll maybe do like 30 seconds total of banter in a two-hour set. But their music is so good that they they rely on their music. Mm-hmm. And they know they can because it's good. So they have zero downtime between songs. Just banger, 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 banger song. Hmm. And everybody loves it. Right. Whereas for us, I, I think we're all great. We, we totally crush the songs we play. But I think that's just... Uh, and a little added thing, because me and Brian are both relatively funny dudes, I think. We're sociable people. Mm-hmm. And we and we like talking to the audience and each other. So that's just another uh, facet of our entertainment package that we can lean on. Yeah. A few things of that for me, and maybe it's because I'm not music. I'm not a musician. But for me, the, a large part of the enjoyment when I go to a show is the banter. Right? Yeah. The between song stuff. or And then thinking about that, too, from like a branding perspective, my un professional branding opinion is it feels like as a band there'd be a huge benefit in just having this higher arching story that you have or theme or something like that absolutely that comes out in your shows and you tell this story yeah, before this song you tell this whatever because if you're if you're a band with really good music and you're also really funny and nobody knows what you're going to say next right that adds a contrast to just going to a show to hear four guys play music yeah you're going to a show to meet four guys and learn about their personalities and and have a laugh and right. hear good music yeah it just adds more to the show 
Yeah. But I wonder if it's, is there space for that? When I'm talking about more of a branding thing where somebody that watches your show can hear this story, they, you, you tell a story before the original, whatever else, or you talk about where you came from, where you're going, what the next steps are, whatever, not like line by line, but somehow it comes out through your messaging or through your banter or whatever else, where somebody can go home and be like, dude, you should have heard this show. These guys run real. And let me tell you what, they're going to, whatever the, whatever the thing is for you, I don't know what it is for you, but is there, is, is there a benefit in that? Like from like defining like on a, on a nerd level, like you're a business, you're defining your oh, mission, yeah. right? Yeah. Defining your vision. And I your, would say that's part of our brand is being funny. Okay. Being funny and having quality banter. Yeah. Between amazing songs. Right. That are played really well. That's definitely part of our brand. Yeah. Like, well, uh, Koski, the drummer is like a, a visual media genius. In my opinion, his verbal sense of humor is garbage because I hate he gets under my skin so much. He used to. We're, I'm used to him now. But as far as visual media goes, you're laughing your ass off. Everything this kid does is genius. Okay. And he makes all our flyers. And one of the things that I guess you could attribute to our brand. Oh, he also came up with the idea as a polar bear for a mascot. And every every type branding type image you see on Trophy Boy is all Kowski. Hmm. And uh, there's this one thing he did when we started is he capitalized on meme culture and just started making memes of of our shows to promote them. And it hmm. worked really well. And that's become part of our brand. We kind of fell out of it before. We, we saw a couple other people start doing it. And we're like, oh, it's not as cool anymore. Mm-hmm. But there's this one flyer. I remember it was for our Luigi show. And it was just a picture of the Titanic going at an iceberg. And on the, t- the Titanic was labeled Trophy Boy, and the iceberg was labeled Luigi's with the dates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just a bunch of different shit like that that's, that adds a, adds a cool little flavor to what we're all about. Yeah. And I think because another part of what I preached and what we were trying to do when we started the Trophy Boy vision is we have to be different in every way possible. We have to be super, super different from every other band around here otherwise we're going to be boring as shit nobody's going to care because mm-hmm. when generally when i personally when i walk into a bar and there's live music i have a typical set of expectations like oh there's live music here um i'm gonna walk in and you know, i'm gonna get to hear music while i drink my beer and i'll look over every once in a while if they play a really good song maybe i'll go up there and watch a little closer with trophy boy it's a fucking show hmm. like you we want people to be like oh trophy boy's playing I'm expecting to go there, get in front of the stage and dance my ass off and get sweaty. And it's going to be a show. It's not going to be background music. Right. So we're just trying to set ourselves apart as much as possible. Yeah. And again, I think this could be where I get too analytical or think about it too much. And when at the end of the day, just get out there and, and perform and show and give people uh, something to talk about. And that's all that matters. But I am thinking about, again, like having a, we talked about branding, you're talking humor, stuff like that, right? That's part mm-hmm. of it. But again, some just seems like there's value in some story really leaning in on like what's your story and having that be part of your whole mission i don't know maybe that's the just story, crazy the but... story will get more interesting as we as we go along sure you're finding it yeah 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 we were only in our first our first show is in october right so we're coming up on our first year together and hopefully we have you know 12 to 15 shows before the year's out and uh yeah the story will get more interesting right one interesting part of the story is about four days after the pain came out i got an email to the band email and I nearly shit my pants when I read it. And I don't know if it's scam a scam or not yet, but uh let me find it real quick. Okay. It says <clears throat> Hi Trophy Boy. 
With Los Angeles and the rest of the state returning to normal, Kelly McGarry Productions is back to booking great live shows in the Southern California area. I found your music online and I really liked what I heard. You have a great sound and I think you would fit well with one of our shows. Please check out our booking calendar below. Huh. So that was super exciting. Right. I don't know if we're going to be able to do it or even get out there because it's going to cost for four people to go out there and lodge. It's like five grand. None of us have five grand. Right. I have considered maxing out a credit card just to be able to do this because it might be a once in a lifetime thing. It might be a scam. I don't know. But I have been talking to the promoter about it. And if we do that, that'll become a really cool part of our story. Yeah. Right. And the story will develop as time goes on. Right now, the I mean, the story is pretty cool if you get really into it. Yeah. But it's it's not it's definitely not anywhere near what it's gonna be five years from now. Yeah. Right. No, and I think that's I felt inspired that I should tell you that. I don't know why, but I'm just saying to have the story side of things, not to say, hey, tell me your story right now, right. but more so to just plant the seed of something that you think about. And maybe it's just crazy. Like, don't even worry about that as a bad. That's the last thing you should do, but. Just worry about, they're, they're, really, you just worry about the things that are right in front of you. Uh, like, we need to practice twice a week consistently. We need to make that work. We need to stop in practice when there's a mistake and address it and go through the song again. A lot of bands I've been in, they'll just be like, oh, it was a little mistake. We'll just go to the next song. And then you keep making that little mistake every time you play the song. Mm -hmm. And another thing, we, we need to focus on our social media presence. We need to support this brand and keep, up, keep coming up with new and interesting ideas. Uh, for like, we need to sell it on stage. We need to sell it, sell the piss out of it and just go completely apeshit crazy. Like, like I haven't really seen a lot of bands do around here. And just these really fundamental things that I think in my experience and other bands have been overlooked and we just need to beat them to death mm -hmm. and just get all these little details. Another way I described it to some people was, uh, we're always like, we're, we're 99% good at a lot of stuff, but there's always that extra 1% and we're just chasing that 1% and we're, we're narrowing that, that margin of what could be. We're mm -hmm. narrowing that margin of potential and getting closer and closer and closer to, to, you know, perfect, right. which will never be. But it's the small details that really count, man. Really, yeah. really small details. Yeah. When you, you, you talked about when you were 12, you took a time off, Ray got you back into it. Yeah. I had the bigger vision long-term, but then you had a year before you came back where you were out of guitar and then you got back into it. When you have these new visions, like right now with Trophy Boy and you're pursuing this, are you just so alive compared to when you don't have something like that? Absolutely. I was pumped when I joined Night Screamer. Yeah. Like a couple of shows and I was like, I realized the value of being in that band. Like I was playing, I recognized that I was playing guitar a lot more. I was breaking a plateau that I had been at for like eight years and actually becoming a better guitarist and huh. learning how to play my, my instrument better for the first time in a really long time. And, I, and that is inspiring and it's just perpetual enjoyment from like, wow, I'm now I'm actually better. I haven't been better at guitar in eight years and I'm hmm. getting better now. Right. And it's all, it all just feeds into each other. And then trophy boy, if I, if I had never joined night screamer, I wouldn't, when they broke up, I wouldn't have had been, I wouldn't have been riding that high to be inspired to, you know, talk to Koski and talk to Brian and, you know, uh, develop this idea with them. Right. That would have never happened because I wouldn't have had the inspiration. I wouldn't have the fire in my in my tummy. Sure, burning. Yeah, but yeah. When when you're when you're active in it, you're definitely a lot more inspired to do even more stuff. 
Yeah. No, I'm just thinking about for myself when I have something like this that I'm just so pumped on or whatever it is, I'm so engaged in that when I don't have anything like that, I'm like empty inside. Yeah. I don't know. That's I, I heard, a, I heard a, a really cool anecdote one time and it's a fear breed or no inaction breeds fear and fear breeds inaction. Okay. So the longer you're not doing anything, the less likely you are to actually get a jump on something. Sure. Cause you're just becoming the inspire is just fading and dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. Right. But when you start taking action, action breeds confidence, confidence brings more action. And then you get more confident, you get more actionable, you do more and more things and the ideas come to you as you go along the path and it gets bigger and cooler and more inspiring. And yeah. Yeah. So right now you're in that, that definitely we're all in that man. The whole band is in that. Right. We all actually, it's really cool to be with a group of people that share the same faith in the project. Yeah. Yeah. Crystal ball. So, well, we could crystal ball it and have you tell me, okay, this is our five-year plan. And I'm not actually necessarily saying that, but it'll be neat to me to think about in five years, or I don't know, you could even set a timeline, two years, five years, one year, whatever, have the same conversation. Where are you at versus this? And you could replay or whatever else. Just Hopefully in five years, we have two to three albums out. Yeah. And we've either toured or be planning to tour. And hopefully we're just still, still together in five years. Yeah. Shit happens, man. Right. Bands break up for all kinds of different reasons. Yeah. And I just want to keep it together and just keep doing what we're doing. Develop a really, uh, like a really type household type name for ourselves as a local cover band and have, you know, have venues reach out to us, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and make, make an actual halfway decent living on playing locally and sell our music. Yeah. And I know eventually the guys, the dream is to segue out of playing cover shows and, and have enough people know and like our music that we can just tour original shows and sell records and sell merch Yeah, and just have our music that we wrote out there and have that propel us as a band. Right. Right. I like the thought of continuous altering of that threshold right like you get up to that higher level and say like hey what what can we go for next what can we go for yeah, next new goals man right but oh, for you dies. is there a part of you i guess i'm saying this for myself personally that you have defense mechanisms in place that don't let you sit across from me right now and say hey we're gonna be the next motley crew or whatever right <laughs> i mean you know what i mean like yeah yeah i would never say something like that right because i don't know where this is gonna go right but there's a part of you that maybe would dream about that or wish for that, but those defense mechanisms, A, wouldn't let you even think about that or maybe even B, at least not voice them. Uh, I, I'll, I'm never scared to say what I'd like to do, but okay. I, I, I'm way too apprehensive to assume anything and tell you like, hey, we're going we're gonna to be this and that and have this many sales next year. I know it. I'm going to make it happen. Sure. But no, I can say, you know, by next year, I'd like to have an album out and I would like to be on tour with it and I would like to have the opportunity to open for a really big name national act. Yeah. There's all things I'd like to do. Right. And right. I, th- I think we can do it, but I'm not going to go off and say that I can. Yeah. Well, I guess <laughs> I heard that I'm going to, No, I, 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 I guess think I, we can do it. Yeah. I guess I wasn't looking for you to say that, but more so just curious if there's a part of you inside that has these walls in place that won't let you, or maybe it's just, yeah, I don't know. I there's guess there's always those for. walls, man. Everyone's, everyone's, I think a little bit scared of success until that's just the inaction thing. Yeah. Uh, like how, how could I ever believe in such a far-fetched dream? Well, you'll never know unless you try to believe in it. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, and I've experienced those walls for sure a lot, but the more, the more you pursue the projects and the better it gets and the more you see the fruits of your labor labor come to life, the less those walls matter Mm -hmm. and the more they crumble and the more achievable the dream feels. Right. So, but that ties back for me right back into the, what we talked about right at the beginning of what would it look like to pursue this? all in. And again, not, not necessarily looking for an action level, but more so where do you get to from a brain space level? And is there some, again, magical moment that happens when you can get to yourself internally to totally feel that, believe that knocked on those walls and get through that? Hell if I know, man. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can find out. Hey, someday. I can find out. We just keep going. And if something big happens, maybe, maybe at some point we'll feel like, holy shit, we actually made it. Yeah. Cause I've, I've watched interviews with, you know, other musicians that have made it and there is, there, there's some people that say, man, oh, man, I don't even feel like this is real still. And they've been doing it for 15 years. Yeah. And there's other people that have a moment where they're like, wow. Yeah. And then I sat there and I looked around and I was like, holy shit, we did it. Right. So I don't know how it's, how the experience is going to be for me or the rest of the band or what, or what moment might trigger that thought to go off in our head. Right. Right. But yeah. It's exciting to think about what it might feel like if it ever happens mm-hmm. or when it happens. Right. To speak more confidently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I appreciate you being willing to dive into like the philosophy and the brain space and everywhere else. I think if anything, I focus too much on that, but I guess that's what I'm into and that's what I'm thinking about and that's what I'm enjoying. So I appreciate you being willing to yeah. dive into all that. Oh yeah, man. So trophy boy on Facebook, Instagram. Trophy boys on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash trophy boy 906. We're on Instagram under trophy underscore boy underscore 906. We're on Snapchat at TrophyBoy906 and YouTube and YouTube yeah. under TrophyBoy906 okay. channel. Like, yeah. It's easier to find our channel if you just search the song that we released. You just type in type in the band name and the the song name because we've you know we're not titans of YouTube. We only have like 400 views, mm-hmm. so you have to type both of those. And if you type in TrophyBoy, the pain, I think it's like the third video down, and then you can click on that and find our channel. Yeah. And yeah, we're also on Spotify and iTunes and apparently we're on Shazam now and Pandora. I haven't been able to find us on Pandora yet, but the distributor sent me an email saying we were. Hmm. So I don't know. Basically everywhere music is sold and Bandcamp, if you really if you really want us to make our dollar and you want to buy the song, buy us on Bandcamp because we get 87 cents on the dollar. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and SoundCloud too. Yeah. An upcoming show, Bridge Fest. Bridge Fest weekend on the downtowner deck for what is expected to be our most massive show ever. Okay. Because it's the downtowner, man. Right. That's a huge bar. And we have a a pretty big following, I would say. So it's going to be everyone that's already going to be at the DT at 9 p.m. on Friday of Bridge Fest, plus everyone that wants to come see Trophy Boy. So I expect it to be massive. And we just ordered new t-shirts and buttons and stickers, so we'll have merch that you can buy. And we're playing from 9 p.m. to midnight. That's June 17th, Friday, June 17th. And a week later on Friday, June 24th, we're playing at the South Range Pub. And the week after that, we're playing our first all original set hmm. at Dam Jam on July 1st, Friday. The okay. day before me and your 10-year reunion. Yeah. yeah. Right. Heck yeah. Well, Wyatt, appreciate it. Thanks for hopping on. Absolutely, brother. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> Hey guys, thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have and you feel so inclined, share this podcast with your friends, 
subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, and give us some feedback with a review. Until next time, thank you.